Right now, let's continue to worship God by listening to what he has to say in his word as we study together. I'd invite you, if you have a Bible, to go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 4. And children, if you are in kindergarten, let's see, yeah, fifth grade on down, we would invite you now to go and enjoy your time in children's church with Mrs. McManus right over there. Baptized and you're going to children's church, you should head over to the sanctuary about 4.15ish, 4.20ish to get dressed. And before I forget, those of you that are in here getting baptized, um, you should probably leave here about 4.15 and you know where to go to get dressed by the baptistry. So if you see people sneaking out, that's probably where they're headed. All right, well hopefully in your bulletin, if you grabbed one, you were able to find some sermon notes there. You can pull that out if you want to to help you. Anybody need a Bible? We have Bibles back here. Um, So if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. And we can get one of those to you right up here. Good. And we're going to go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 4. We do have a lot of visitors today. Just so you know what we've been doing pretty much since we started the church. We've been going through the book of Ephesians in a biblical study together. Of the book of Ephesians, six chapters because the Ephesians, of all of the books in the New Testament, tells you how you should run a church. And we thought, hey, we're a new church. We need a roadmap, and so God has given a divine roadmap through the book of Ephesians. So we've been studying it together. We finished the first three chapters, going week by week, about a paragraph at a time, seeing what Paul's main thoughts were for the church. Actually, they were the thoughts of the Holy Spirit. It's been a blessed time, learning a lot, and very applicable to our church. And if you're a Christian, these truths will be applicable to you as well, because they don't just speak corporately to a church. They speak to every individual Christian, actually every person who's been created in the image of God. So we're on Ephesians 4, and verses 1 through 16 are kind of a unit. They go together. It's one continuous thought that Paul has. He starts with an argument, and he's leading up to a conclusion. His conclusion in verses 1 through 16, Paul is trying to tell Christians that God has a plan for the church. And God's plan for the church is that the church would grow and mature and be healthy. And he's talking about the church for the last 2,000 years, the church as a whole, the universal church. But he's also speaking to local churches. What is true of the universal church should also be true of the local church. So Paul, the apostle, 2,000 years ago, was writing to a local church, a small group of believers that lived in the city of Ephesus. It was a church plant that the apostle Paul started. He stayed there for three years. He trained up leadership. He left, checking back in with them about five years later, and was reminding them the things they need to pursue as a church. And that's what he's doing in Ephesians. In verses 1 through 16, Paul is highlighting that one of the main things that God has called a church to do is to be mature. They need to grow. They need to be healthy. So that's the theme of verses 1 through 16. And part and one of the earmarks of maturity as a Christian and maturity as a church is unity. Because he uses that word unity all throughout verses 1 through 16. And just the opposite is true. One of the earmarks of a false disciple or one of the earmarks of an immature Christian is division, divisiveness, argumentativeness, hard-headedness. So Paul's saying you need to be a mature church. You need to pursue growth. And one of the marks of that will be true unity in the Spirit. And then he gives a strategic plan of how to implement growth in your church. Look at verse 13. He's referring to the church as he wants the church to be a mature man. That's a metaphor. That's God's desire. He wants the church to be a mature man, a mature body. Then in verse 15, middle of the verse, he says you need to grow up. God wants the church to grow up, not to be a baby, but be mature. So it's that theme of maturity. And then finally at the end of verse 16, all these things are leading up to the growth of the body of Christ. So these are all 
things that God wants. It is his will that we grow, that we mature as a church. And then he's going to tell us how to do that. So we've covered that. Step number one of how to grow up and be mature and how to be unified and how to produce growth and health in the local church was verses 1 through 3 where he said you need to have the right attitude. And that was a humble attitude. One of the greatest signs of maturity is humility. A humble attitude. And that was his emphasis. And it starts with you. It starts in the heart on an individual basis. You want to grow, Christian? You want to grow, church? Then start with humble attitudes. And that was verses 1 through 3. And then he said, and there's a model to follow of perfect unity. And that was his second reminder to us. And that was verses uh, 3 through 6. And that is, you need to be unified because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit function perfectly in unity, in sync. So if God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit can function eternally, in perfect unity in an intimate way, so also the church should do the same. And then he's going to go on with a third truth of how the church is to pursue growth and maturity as a local body. And that's where we are introducing verses 7 through 10. And I'm calling it today, just the title I came up with was, Every Gift is from Above. So what Paul's going to tell us, there's a way that we can get involved in a very practical, tangible, hands-on way to contribute to the growth of the body of Christ. And it has to do with gifts, using your gift as a Christian in the local church. That's his argument. He's going to start this and go on for several verses. So let's go ahead and look at verses 7 through 10. And let me read those as God talks about the spiritual gifts that are given to the church to help it grow and stay unified and be productive. Starts at verse 7, he says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, in the Old Testament he's quoting now, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. So, he, in verse 10, He who descended is himself also he who ascended from far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, at first glance, if you're reading that for the first time in a while, or if you're reading that passage for the first time ever, it might be real cloudy and confusing. Uh, That's why we want to go through it very carefully, step by step, and see the clarity of what God is saying regarding the church, how it's supposed to grow in unity relative to spiritual gifts. So out of this passage, I glean five principles that we need to think about and apply to our lives as a local church and as Christians So let's go ahead and look at these five principles that come out of this wonderful passage for the church. Like I said, this is talking about spiritual gifts. Every Christian has a spiritual gift. That's very clear. That's what Paul says. And really, that's point number one. Christ gives every Christian a spiritual gift. That's truth number one in this passage. Christ gives every Christian a spiritual gift. That's verse 7. But to each one, he's talking to Christians here, and he's talking to individuals, the individual Christians in Ephesus, and he's telling them, okay, if you are a Christian, you need to know that the following is true. But to each one, to each Christian, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. All he's saying is every Christian has been given a spiritual gift by Christ. And this is also true. Just a couple of other verses that I want to corroborate this with. You don't need to flip there. But listen, Paul talks about spiritual gifts to uh, the other churches as well. Because he knew it was very important. If a church really wants to grow, then they need to understand the truth about spiritual gifts. And then they need to implement their spiritual gifts. So he said to the Corinthians, 
And he reminded them, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul said to the Christians at Corinth, he said, to each one, to every Christian is given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. What he was talking about was spiritual gifts, he calls them later. And the spiritual gift he called a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, meaning that the spiritual gifts are energized by the Holy Spirit. But every Christian has one, a spiritual gift that is energized by the Holy Spirit. Every Christian without exception. Romans 12, 3. Paul's talking to the Roman Christian, says the same thing. He says very clearly, God has allotted or given to each Christian a measure of faith. And in that context, he's talking about spiritual gifts. So it's a fact. God has allotted, God has given to every Christian a spiritual gift. And then in 1 Peter 4.10, the Apostle Peter said the same thing to Christians he was talking to when he wrote, Each one, every Christian has received a special gift. And Peter was talking about spiritual gifts there. Okay, spiritual gifts are not human, natural human capabilities. We were not born naturally, naturally with spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are special gifts from God, from Christ, given to you after you become a Christian. If you are not a Christian, you don't have a spiritual gift. Very important to keep that in mind. These are energized by the Holy Spirit of God. So that's what he's talking about. Christ gives every Christian a spiritual gift. And as a, as a pastor, this is very important to know this because the pastor or the leaders of the church, the shepherds, are responsible for shepherding the flock, taking care of the saints, managing the church, making sure it's healthy, making sure it's growing. And the way you grow a church isn't through one man. The pastor doesn't grow the church. Actually, Jesus said he was going to build the church. So Jesus is the one that builds the church. But how does Jesus build the church? Jesus use, uses Christians, a plurality of Christians to grow the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. So it's not the pastor building the church. Jesus builds the church. But in Corinthians, God revealed to us through the Apostle Paul, yeah, true, Jesus builds the church, God builds the church, but another great truth, there is a human element or component involved. We are allowed to participate. God is the master architect. Jesus is the Lord. He is the one who is in charge of building the church. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that we, Christians, are privileged to be co-laborers with God. Co-workers with God. We get to be apprentices under the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus, the master builder. So God's plan is, if you are a Christian, He wants you involved in a local church and He wants you serving, using your gift, helping the church grow in fulfillment of the Great Commission and Jesus' promise when He said He was going to build the church. Yes, Jesus is going to build the church, but He's going to use us to do it. That's an amazing truth. It's a great responsibility, it's a great privilege, it's a great stewardship, and it's, it's just an awesome truth. So every Christian has something to contribute. So if you're a Christian here today, you have a spiritual gift, regardless of your age. Maybe you're 13 and you're a Christian. Well, I don't have anything to contribute, I'm too young. That's not true. If you're 13 and you're a Christian, the moment you became a Christian, God endowed you with a spiritual gift. Maybe it'll take time to learn what your gift is, to discern. Maybe you'll need time to mature in terms of using that gift. But that will come in time. But the point is, if you're a Christian, God's given you a gift. And if you've been a Christian for any number of years, and you're an adult, and you really are a Christian, you have a spiritual gift, but if you haven't been using it, then you are being idle. God wants to use you, Christian, in His local church to implement, serve. Use your, your spiritual gift to contribute to the growth and the unity of the local church. So that's the emphasis of this entire passage what he's talking about. God wants the church to grow and he's going to use you to do it. He doesn't have to use us, does he? But he has chosen to sovereignly. That's awesome. So point number one, Christ gives every Christian a spiritual gift. Point number two, Paul goes on. Uh, Christ determines the nature of the gifts. He determines the nature of the gifts. He determines the measure of the gifts. Like teaching is one of the spiritual gifts. 
And God, or Christ, He is the one who gives the gift of teaching. He determines it. He sovereignly doles out who gets what gift. You know, that's comforting for me. So when I became a Christian, I have to think, oh, I want this one. Or maybe, no, I want this spiritual gift. It didn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Christ sovereignly determines what gift He's going to give to you and to me because He's the master architect and He knows what is best, doesn't He? Father knows best. Christ knows best. He knows what needs to be done to accomplish the plan to grow the church. So He is sovereignly allotting one individual Christian at a time what their spiritual gift is. So teaching would be one of the spiritual gifts. But the terminology used, let's go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 4, where he talks about this. But to each one of us, grace was given, here's the key, according to the measure of Christ's gift. According to Christ. So gifts are given according to Christ, based on what Christ wants you to have. So if you're a Christian, you have a gift, and the gift you have is the one God chose for you. You had no say in it. That's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. And also that phrase right there. Not only did he choose which gift he was going to give you, he was going to... He determined what, how much of a dose he was going to give you of your spiritual gift. Because there are different capacities that we function at. you got uh, teachers who have a certain potential, other teachers who have a greater potential, and then teachers with the gift of teaching who have even a greater potential in terms of the gift, the measure of that gift that God gave them. A greater capacity, if you will, based on Christ's discretion. He measures it out. Because that word uh, in Ephesians 4, 7, where it says, according to the measure of Christ's gift, the word for measure, or I think the NIV says, as Christ apportioned it, that word, the Greek word is where we get the word metrics from. Literally, Christ measured it out. He gave, you a certain, he gave you the gift of mercy, and He measured out how much of the gift of mercy He was going to give to you. Then as a Christian, you are responsible for using that gift to your potential. And God wants you to use the gift that He has portioned out or measured for you to your potential. That doesn't, so, in other words, not everybody is going to be functioning to the same degree. Your responsibility and my responsibility is simply faithfulness to what we've been given. Now, look at this. The fact that we have different... Let me read Romans 12, 6, because Paul talks about this in a different way. Talking about the spiritual gifts, different measures, different amounts, different doses that are given to each Christian. Not everybody is given the same gift. Not everybody given, is given the same gift with the same degree or the same amount or the same dose. Romans 12, 6, Paul says, We, Christians, have gifts that differ. That's all there is to it. But not everybody has the same gift. And we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. It was determined by Christ how much of a gift He was going to give you. So question, Christian, what gift do you have? Every Christian needs to answer that question. It's a fundamental, basic question. And there are several answers you could give, as I'm asking you. If you are a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. Christ gave it to you. Now the question is, what gift do you have? What is your spiritual gift? Every Christian should be able to answer that question. And here's the answers you could give. Well, I'm not sure. That's a legitimate answer. I was there. It took me a few years to di- really discover what my spiritual gift was. I mean, I had an idea. One time, I think this is my gift. Plenty of people said, no, I know you don't have that gift. Yeah, you're, you stink at that gift, by the way. Not only do you not have it, you're horrible. Oh, okay, well, it finally sunk in, and I, I look back years now, and I, I agree, they were right, I was wrong. Uh, so you could, that's a legitimate answer. What is your spiritual gift, Christian? Well, I don't know. Okay, well, that's what the job of the church and leadership is supposed to do. They're supposed to help you discover your spiritual gift. What's your spiritual gift? I don't know. What's your spiritual gift? I don't have one. That's an illegitimate answer. Are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Then you have a spiritual gift. Well, I don't feel like I have one. Well, that's too, it doesn't matter what you feel. The Bible says you have a gift. 
So let's discover it together. Or maybe we need to talk about your salvation. Are you a Christian? Yes. Okay, then you have a spiritual gift. Let's discover what it is. How do I do that? Glad you asked. And then you go study the scriptures together and find out what the spiritual gift was. What's your spiritual gift? Uh, this and this and this. Oh, okay. Now, are you using that gift anymore? Well, not really. How come? Well, because I don't want to. Or I don't know where. I just don't fit in. I'm not comfortable. Uh, I'm between churches. Uh, it's been a long time. Oh, I tried that once. And so on. I mean, there's a lot of excuses you can get from Christians. And that's a legitimate... I mean, that's, I hear that answer a lot from different Christians. You can't just ignore that. You have to shepherd that answer. Okay, well... You're on a dry spell. We want to take you by the hand. We want to help you through this. We want you uh, as a healthy Christian. And if you're a Christian and you're not serving and you're not using your gift, you're not a healthy Christian because you're not an obedient Christian. You're not a functioning, fruitful Christian. That's a healthy Christian. And we want you to be that. So we're going to help you in this process of implementing the gift that God has given you. So you need to deal with people like that. And then there are other people who they know, here's my spiritual gift. How can I be used? Here I am, Lord, use me. So you've got people on various places on the spectrum of the Christian life in terms of maturity, experience, and even just understanding about the spiritual gift. And that is okay. That's okay. And that's why Paul is addressing this issue. He knew that there were Christians at different places on the spectrum of understanding regarding this. So we need to talk about it. Um, Go to Matthew 13 if you have your Bible, because I just want to read this. This is very encouraging. Um, Another encouraging thing. I'm encouraged by the fact that Christ gave me my spiritual gift or gifts. By the way, you can have more than one spiritual gift. That's up to God's discretion as well. And not only do you have a spiritual gift, you have a certain measure of that gift. In other words, to put it another way, some of us as Christians are 60-watt light bulbs. Some of us are 70-watt light bulbs. Some of us are 100-watt light bulbs. Your responsibility in terms of your giftedness, your responsibility before God is not to shine at 100 watts. Your responsibility is to function at your full capacity. So if you're a 60-watt light bulb, you are to function and serve at a 60-watt capacity. And then when you see Christ personally, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he'll say the same thing to the 75-watt Christian. So the 60-watt Christian doesn't need to be functioning at 75 watts. First of all, it's impossible. You'll have to do it in your own flesh. But at the same time, the 75-watt Christian cannot be content with functioning at 60 watts. Because they're not functioning to their capacity. And that's what Christ wants. 100% faithfulness. And he'll help us in that regard. But in terms of this different wattage, look at Matthew 13, verse 23. Jesus told a parable. And he's talking about Christians, when people become believers. And how God uh, gives different allotments, different measures of faith, if you will, to different Christians at God's discretion. And the output he's looking for is just simply faithfulness. He's not looking for equal output of every Christian. Verse 23, Matthew 13. And the one on whom the seed, that's the word of God of the gospel, was sown on the good soil. That's the heart of a person. That's a person who heard the word of God, heard the gospel, and believed in it and became a Christian. They became a believer. This is the man. This is the woman. This is a Christian who hears the word and understands it. They got saved. Who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. In other words, in Jesus' day, they had 30 watt light bulbs, 60 watt light bulbs, 100 watt light bulbs. We've made advances technologically since then. But anyway, there it is. Jesus is saying, whatever you are, just be faithful. That is an encouraging truth. So I don't have to function, I don't have to reach the capacity of Martin Luther or John Calvin or 
picking, you know, Chuck Swindoll and on and on it goes. I just need to be faithful to what God has given me. And he will bless you if you do. So Christ determines the, the nature or the measure of the gifts. Uh, number three, he goes on. Christ gave spiritual gifts after his resurrection, or his, his ascension. Christ gave the spiritual gifts after his ascension. Here's where you get to kind of the confusing part in Ephesians 4. So let's go ahead and look at Ephesians 4, 7 and 8. Okay, to each Christian, every one of us has given a gift. He calls it, by the way, he calls it a, he refers to the gift as grace. In other words, you didn't earn it, you couldn't buy it. As a matter of fact, we didn't deserve it. It was a gift of grace. The spiritual gift you have is a gift of grace. It's a good thing from God that we didn't deserve to bless us and to bless the church. That's what grace means. You can't earn it. And it was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And therefore, it says, and now he's going to use the Old Testament to corroborate this truth where Christ fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy that Christ, the Messiah, was going to come and he was going to give spiritual gifts to people, to his saints in the church. And so Christ fulfilled this prophecy from the psalm, Psalm 68. When it says, therefore it says, speaking of the Messiah who came, Jesus Christ. Now keeping in mind, this, this psalm was written way before Jesus was ever born. Jesus fulfilled this verse in this psalm. When he ascended on high, now that's talking about he is Jesus here. So you can put Jesus' name in there. When Jesus ascended on high, when did he ascend? He ascended after he died and was buried. Forty days later, he ascended back into heaven. That's what it's talking about. Jesus ascended into heaven. So the ascension was predicted in the Old Testament. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. Boy, that's confusing. What does that mean? Well, in this context, the captives are actually the bad guys. The enemies. That's the context of Psalm 68 as well. The bad guys. So sometime between his death and the ascension, Christ took captive some bad guys. And conquered them, is what it's saying. So he led captive a host of captives. He was victorious. He captured the bad guys and led them away and put them wherever they deserved to be put. And also at that time, he gave gifts to men. Now this is after his resurrection, at the time of his ascension. Actually, after the time of his ascension, Christ gave spiritual gifts to men. That's referring to Christ gave spiritual gifts to Christians, is what it's saying. Christ began to give out spiritual gifts to every Christian after the church was started. So this was after his ascension, and then shortly thereafter, the Holy Spirit came down upon Christians, and that's how the first church started. The first church started in Acts chapter 2 called the Day of Pentecost. And that's when Christ began to dole out the spiritual gifts to Christians. So they, as humans on earth, could help the church grow, utilizing their spiritual gifts. That's when Christ gave them their gifts. He began to do it 2,000 years ago. Christ has been doing it nonstop ever since. Any person that ever becomes a Christian is given a spiritual gift. And that started after the ascension. The important thing is there. So number three, Christ gave spiritual gifts after his ascension. couple things I want to point out. If Christ gave spiritual gifts after the ascension, specifically for the church, then spiritual gifts given to Christians for the church is a unique thing. It's a new thing. Spiritual gifts given to every Christian is for the new dispensation. In other words, this was not a reality or a truth going on in the Old Testament. From the time of Adam all the way up to the last prophet, Malachi or whatever, before Christ came, spiritual gifts were not being dispensed on an individual basis to every true believer. We know that's true. The Holy Spirit was not living inside of every believer in the Old Testament. Did you know that? The fact that when you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit began to live in you is a new reality that only started in the New Testament after the ascension of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, believers, true believers, David, Abraham, Job, take a pick. 
It was not normative once they put faith in God and they became a believer. It was not normative for God to send the Holy Spirit to live inside of them until the day they die. This is a unique truth. This is a great privilege for the Christian era in the church. Very important to keep that in mind. So Jesus Christ was not giving out spiritual gifts in the Old Testament. Why? Because Jesus wasn't born yet. He didn't accomplish his work yet. He hadn't ascended on high yet. He hadn't assumed the throne as King of kings and Lord of lords the way he has after the ascension, where he had the authority to dole out the gifts. And also, uh, the specific gifts, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12-14, through 14, gifts are given to Christians to build the church, the body of Christ. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. God was building and working on the nation of Israel, the theocracy, in a different way. He wasn't using individual spiritual gifts of every believer. Spiritual gifts are given to every Christian in this dispensation for the building up specifically of the body of Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. Spiritual gifts are given for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service or ministry, for the goal of building up the body of Christ, the church. Church didn't exist in the Old Testament. This was not going on. So this is a new truth, a new reality. And spiritual gifts were given after Christ's ascension. And that's why I kind of am confused at people who talk about spiritual gifts. You need to search the Bible and look for your spiritual gift. And then they start going into the Old Testament on some obscure abilities that certain guys had and say, hey, maybe that's your spiritual gift. Like the guy that was hand-appointed by God to work on the artwork of the tabernacle and the temple. And say, hey, maybe you got that spiritual gift. I don't think so. It doesn't, first of all, it doesn't say it was a spiritual gift. It was a unique time period, and it was a specific purpose of building the temple. That's it. Oliab, or whatever the guy's name. That's not one of the gifts specifically enumerated in the New Testament. There are specific gifts given in the New Testament that Paul says, these are the gifts that God is giving to the saints in the church. So a very important point. Christ gave spiritual gifts after his ascension, after he ascended on high and conquered captives. By the way, who are these captives? I think from the context, uh, by virtue of Christ's coming, his perfect life, his mission, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, the main thing Christ conquered was sin, wasn't it? It was sin, Satan, death, hell. Those were the enemies, and that's who Christ conquered when he came. And when he ascended on high, it was declared to all the universe, Christ is victor. He has captured his enemies. He has overcome his enemies. And that's who the captives are. As a matter of fact, Peter alludes to the fact that at some point, God took demons and threw them into demon prison called Tartarus, where they were thrown and imprisoned till the end judgment at the end of the age. So that's what verse 8 is talking about. Very confusing verse. But anyway, let's go on to number 4. Number 4, Christ earned the right to give the gifts. We've alluded to it already. Christ earned the right to give the gifts. How did he earn it? Well, Paul goes on. Uh, verse 9, he says, Now, the, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except the fact that he also descended? Now, if Christ ascended back into heaven, then that implies that at some point he descended to earth, didn't he? Now, when did Christ descend to earth? John chapter 6 and other passages clearly tell us. Before the world was created, there existed God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They were up there before the world was created. They created the world. The world fell into sin, and then Jesus came down to the earth he created. He descended to earth. That's what it's talking about. For his mission for 33 years. He descended on this earth with a mission to save the world from sin. That's what it's talking about. So the fact that he ascended implies that he descended. And John 6 tells us that's exactly what he did. Jesus kept saying, I am from above. I came down from heaven. I have descended from there. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? So that the descension is referring to Christ's incarnation. When he came down from heaven, 
became a man, lived on earth for 33 years and died. But the culmination of his incarnation and the dissension that he made is when he came down to planet earth. What was the culmination of everything Jesus came to do? It was his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. And that's what Paul is saying here. That phrase at the end of verse 9. He descended into the lower parts of the earth. He descended to earth literally. And not only did he descend to live on earth, he descended to die on earth. The inner earth is what it's talking about. When it says the lower part of the earth, it's literally inside the earth. Where was Jesus buried? Inside the earth. In a tomb. That is what this is talking about. So that was the culminate. That is where Jesus Christ secured victory in his death. That's why on the cross just before his last breath, he said, it is finished. Tetelestai. He secured victory for all of humanity by conquering sin, Satan, death, and hell. And then he was buried and he showed that he was the victor by rising again from the dead, having power over the grave. And as a result, God the Father honored or exalted Jesus Christ for being the victor, for conquering sin, and then gave Christ great, unique privileges as the Savior of the world. And I want to read some of those. Here's a parallel passage in Philippians 2 if you have your Bible. Philippians 2 undergirds this truth that Christ earned the right to give spiritual church or spiritual gifts to the church by virtue of his work, the work of the atonement. By his death and resurrection, he earned that right. It was planned in eternity past, by the way. It was guaranteed to happen, but it was acted out in time, and he earned that right. So in Philippians chapter 2, it's talking about Christ, how humble he was. I'll just start at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, Jesus was God. Jesus is God. Jesus is deity. Before the world was ever created, Jesus existed with God the Father. Jesus did not have a body. He was an eternal being. He was not a man. He was never created. He is God. Who, although he existed in the very form and likeness of God, did not regard equality with God the Father a thing to be held onto or grasped, But instead, in light of the fact that this sinful humanity needed to be saved, Jesus willingly, verse 7, emptied himself. In other words, agreed to leave glory in heaven, to come down to earth and condescend by becoming a human being as the infinite God. Took the form of a bondservant, a slave, if you will, the lowest of human beings. And being made in the likeness of humanity... He became a real human being, even though he was a sinless human being. All the while, he remained 100% God. How do you explain that? I can't. It's a miracle. To accomplish his mission, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, to be punished by God the Father for all the sins of the world. That's who punished Jesus on the cross. God the Father punished Jesus on the cross. And being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself. Notice this, by doing what? By becoming obedient to the point of his death. Why did Jesus come? To die, that's what it says. He came to die. He came to go to the grave. His death is the culmination of his mission. It was not an accident. It was planned in eternity past. Came obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then here's how God exalted him. Verse 9, Therefore God the Father also highly exalted Christ because he, ro- because he was willing to die, because he was buried, because he rose again from the dead. And God the Father bestowed on Christ the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow. Do you know that's going to happen someday? Every knee, every created soul, someday has to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I always say, it's better to do it in this life and get saved than have to do it in the next life when you won't want to. Every knee should bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, this is all beings, angels, humans, believers, unbelievers. There's a day appointed. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So God highly exalted Jesus because of his obedience to death on the cross. That is exactly what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9. Because he went into the lower part of the earth. He was willing to die to be the Savior and Lord of the world. He did. He did it successfully, and as a result, God the Father blessed Christ with many blessings. He was exalted. So as a result, because Christ successfully came, lived the perfect life, never sinned, got punished on the cross, rose again from the dead, and ascended back into heaven successfully, God the Father highly exalted him with privileges. Some of these privileges was that God the Father allowed Christ to be the gift giver of the church. So Christ has that privilege. He sovereignly gives spiritual gifts. Among other things, uh, John 5 says that Jesus Christ is the judge. Every person is going to rise again from the dead. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you will rise in a physical body, says John chapter 5. I didn't make it up. And you will be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ, it says. Not by God the Father, but first and foremost, by the Lord Jesus Christ as judge. And then other rights that Christ has. But anyway, he has earned his right to be be the gift giver of the church because it is his church. He died for it. He's the head. He is the master. He's building it. He's orchestrating it. He's got the master plan. He knows what's best. And then finally, number five. Christ has an ultimate purpose for giving gifts. He has an ultimate purpose. That's verse 10. He's not just giving gifts willy-nilly. He has a plan in mind. It's a perfect plan. When you, you know that show where they rip somebody's house down and build it up in a week? That, that's, a, that's hard to do. That's almost impossible. You better have a plan before you try to pull that off. Rip somebody's house down and call them, okay, you can come back in seven days. I guarantee they have a very detailed, strategic, long, thought-out plan. God has one that's even more strategic and thought-out. And that's verse 10. He who descended is himself, that's Jesus, Also he who ascended, so Jesus came to earth, died, got buried, ascended back into heaven, been exalted, he's the gift giver. As a matter of fact, he's ascended back into heaven far above all the heavens. Jesus is more important than all the angels. Jesus is more important than all of humanity. Jesus has a reserved, exalted place in glory in heaven as master, Lord of lords, king of kings, as the gift giver. He's exalted far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Christ is exalted in heaven right now because he has a plan, and his plan is to fill all things. What does that mean, fill all things? Well, he has a master plan. And the master plan includes the entirety of planet Earth and the entirety of the history of planet Earth and every human soul that ever existed. What is Christ's master plan as he sits yonder, reigned in heavenly glory, overlooking this earth? Well, his master plan is to build up the body of Christ, to grow the body of Christ. I will build my church. That's part of his master plan. He's trying to build up the church because the church is supposed to represent him throughout the world. That's his master plan. He's trying to get the word out. Coca-Cola is trying to get the word out wherever it can. Starbucks is trying to get the word out all over the world. Jesus is trying to do the same thing. He's had a 2,000-year head start. He's going to win. So building up the body of Christ, raising the church up. And then also he said this, I will build my church was part of his master plan. Uh, And then he told the church, go and make disciples of all nations. He wanted Christians to be dispersed and infiltrate the entire world to make disciples of all the nations. That's part of his master plan. So that he might fill all things, the entire earth. His message is to be taken everywhere. 
Uh, he said in Mark 16, go into all the world. So it's all nations, all over the world, the entire world. That is Christ's master plan. Six continents isn't good enough. It's the entire earth he's after. That's what it says in Acts 17, verse 24, where it says that Christ is demanding that every man everywhere repent and recognize that he is Lord of all. That's his master plan. So what is his master plan? His master plan is the deliberate, strategic overtake of the world. That's his master plan. Serious. And the book of Revelation says he's going to do that. You know, you think, oh, that's kind of a dramatic, threatening, intimidating master plan. Do you know other people of less stature have the same plan? Muhammad had the same plan. Islam as a world religion has that plan right now to subjugate the entire world for Allah. Jesus Christ wants to subjugate the entire world for Him and the Father. And that's a good thing. And He's using the church to do it, to be His representatives. Jesus is in heaven right now. So His foot soldiers are us. We are in the trenches. And we need to be armed. We are armed with spiritual gifts to fulfill this mission of taking over the world. I don't know if you knew you were as a Christian, that you were involved in this grand scheme of a plan. Maybe you just had a little tiny picture, a little myopic supervision, uh, superficial vision of you're just in your little corner doing your thing. No, you are a part of a grand eternal scheme of taking over the world. Say that to somebody next time. What are you trying to do? I'm trying to take over the world with Christ. Seriously. Well, he's going to succeed. Let me close with this. Where he succeeds at taking over the world. Revelation chapter 11. I want to read this verse. If you've got a Christmas letter... <clears throat> Uh, this verse was on it. If you didn't get our Christmas letter, I'm sorry. I ran out of stamps. But anyway, um, I love this verse. Revelation 11, verse 15. By the way, most of Revelation after chapter 3 is still future. So this is what's going to happen in the world. So what's going to happen? Well, it's guaranteed. It's written down. Jesus will succeed. He will be victorious. And he's going to accomplish his goal. He's going to take over the world in a legitimate way through using his church and his saints as they serve Faithfully, And then in verse 15 of chapter 11, Revelation says this, And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven. They are cheering. The angels are cheering. Saints have gone forth. They are cheering victoriously. Why? Because the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Mission accomplished. Isn't that exciting? And as Christians, it's guaranteed to happen. We get to be a part of that. And as we look to the future and God fulfilling that plan, I just pray that that would affect us in the way we live right now. So let's go ahead and close in prayer and thank God for His Word. Father, we do thank You for our time together. Thank You that You still speak. You speak through Your Holy Spirit. You speak through the clarity of Your Word and the Bible. Thank You for reminding us of the importance of spiritual gifts. And more importantly, the gift giver, that's You, Christ. Thank You for being willing to come down here to live the perfect life to be punished for our sins, to rise victoriously from the dead, to ascend on high so that you'd be in a position to build your church and equip us to work alongside you. And I just pray that your hand of blessing would be upon Grace Bible Fellowship as we seek to be obedient to that end, looking forward to the day where we can rejoice with everyone else in heaven, saying that the kingdom of this world has become victoriously your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.